Growing up, I was a tomboy through and through and spent way more time with guys than gals. It wasn't until college that I truly appreciated the importance of having a support group of women. Cut to 25 years later when I finally felt comfortable attending an all-women's conference where I met Jane Mossbacker Morris, author of By the Change You Want to See. It was evident Jane would be an entrepreneur from her early days as a Girl Scout. I was determined to sell the most boxes in my troop. I had identified the street in Houston, Texas with the most expensive houses. I don't know if it's like they felt sorry for me or they were like totally like amused. I loved those early memories of like trying to drum up business. Though the entrepreneurship seeds were sown, through elementary and middle school, Jane really aspired to be a professional actress sort of elementary school kid and middle school kid. I was in professional theater. I loved it and it was so helpful for me because it it helped me in public speaking and it helped me in stage presence. Her story as an entrepreneur continues after 9-11, during Jane's high school years, stirring a strong passion to help others. I went to a high school that was outside of New York and 9-11 happened when I was in high school. And um, it had like a really big impact on me. It just really wanted to study international relations with a focus on on national security. And so I ended up going to Georgetown to do that. And then my junior year, I started working at the State Department in counterterrorism. My specialty was actually helping women fight terrorism. And so because I had seen so many communities that just felt sort of powerless I really began to think about job creation and job sustainment, knowing that, you know, that would allow for access to resources because they could actually earn a living and then determine their own destiny. Working in counterterrorism eventually led Jane to find her true passion of empowering women around the world to have dignified work. I actually went to work for Mrs. Cindy McCain um, at the McCain Institute for International Leadership, where I was running their human trafficking and labor exploitation programming. I developed a a more informed process around the extent to which there was labor exploitation in the supply chain in retail. And it was after my time at the McCain Institute that I started To The Market. And um, To The Market uh, is a business that is focused on really helping brands, retailers, corporations, consumers harness their purchasing power for good. To the Market is a digital platform that matches retailers with small women-run makers around the world that are vetted as ethically and sustainably run operations. We talk about lessons learned as an entrepreneur. I think, you know, one of the things I've done at different times in my fundraising journey is not casting a wide enough net. I think I've done that twice now. And Jane shares her philosophy on matching your gifts to your passions. There are many, many paths to a fulfilling and impactful life. And oftentimes it doesn't look exactly the way perhaps we originally envisioned. It's super, super critical to ask yourself and getting back to intellectual honesty, to ask yourself, what specifically do I have and that I can contribute? A key trait Jane looks for in new hires as she builds out her company is someone who's really looking to be intellectually honest? Is this something they really want to do? And and what I often say to folks at the end is, you know, it's important for me and for you to be intellectually honest. Jane is an inspirational young leader, and you're going to love our conversation on Mentor DNA. 
Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce, and I chat with C-suite executives and inspirational leaders so that you can leverage the lessons they share in your own career. You'll hear what makes successful leaders tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories shared about boardroom experiences and tough conversations with colleagues. Full bios, book recommendations, and more details about my guests can be found at mentordna.io. Thanks for tuning in. I mean, I was always doing things around the house and and trying to, you know, (laughs) trying to drum up some business in the household. I'm just giggling about like drumming up that business. So one of the very first things I did where, you know, I, I don't think that I made any money, but I, I certainly charged people <laughs> was, uh, I, you know, have a, a younger sister who is incredible Meredith, but being the older sister, of course, her friends were like, you know, perfect specimens for all things, you know, directing, um, et cetera. And so I decided that I wanted to put on a camp, an overnight camp. <laughs> wow, was, that's I ambitious. Think, You know, I had gone to camp since like first grade and loved it. I'm a middle child. So I'm like super independent. I'd always loved camp. And I was like, I need to put on a camp for my little sister's friends. And so in, in middle school, I put together this pitch for uh, a camp called Camp Kiwa. And I pitched my little sister's friend's parents um, about this, you know, it was going to be two nights. It was going to be, you know, I'm from Houston, Texas originally. So it was going to be in Kima where my, my family had like a Bay house. It was going to be like in the front lawn there. <laughs> and oh we were going to have, you know, all the sort of like basics of a camp. And, you know, we did it. we set up tents in the front yard. There were 10, you know, 10 campers, um, who came, we had like two sort of warring teams, you know, like girls would be assigned <laughs> a team, like just a, like a normal camp. And, we had an award ceremony, which I just wish I had been a fly on the wall because I'm sure I thought it was hugely important. And I'm sure I was absolutely hilarious, like a caricature, but that was like my, I think the first time I really charged people. The other story that comes to mind super fast is less of like a job, but more just thinking of sales. And I actually wrote about this in my book, but you know, I was uh, a Daisy and then I was a Brownie And I love that the Girl Scouts get the girls to sell cookies because I think it's so critical for women in particular to learn to sell and to feel comfortable selling. And in my troop, like as in every troop, you know, you have these like prizes, like if you sell this number of boxes or, you know, whatever. So I was determined to sell the most boxes in my troop. And apparently my mom loves telling the story. I had identified the street in Houston, Texas with the most expensive houses. And I went to my mother and I said, mom, I need you to give me the phone numbers for all of the people who live on this street, <laughs> which, you know, she, she didn't do, but um, she did, she did take me to walk it. I, I just feel like all those sort of like fun enterprising things, you know, get sort of the juices flowing for. Well, well um, and how did, how did your sales route go on that very you know, high end Houston street? I think it went pretty well. I mean, probably because people were like, I don't know if it's like they felt sorry for me or they were like totally like amused by the fact, you know, because these are homes also that like weren't, you couldn't just walk up to the door. Like it's like they're gated. So it's like you're buzzing at the gate. You're like, hello, can I come to the door and sell you cookies? I don't even know if they sell door to door anymore. 
I'm oh yeah, not we sure still they do. Yeah, we still get Girl Scouts at our door, but okay. typically, more typically now, you see them on the street corner with a big sign, yeah. catching yeah. all the traffic driving by. Yeah, I loved those early memories of like trying to drum up business. All right, so <laughs> entrepreneur from the very early age, and so then where did that take you? You know, it's funny because I never thought I would start a business. Like it just wasn't in the realm of things that I considered um, as like a sort of elementary school kid and middle school kid. I was in professional theater. Um, oh, so I was doing. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah musical theater. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, you and Courtney. How did I not know that? <gasps> well, I mean, Courtney is like you know, a thousand times more talented than I, but I loved it. And it was so helpful for me because it, it helped me in public speaking and it helped me in stage presence and having a thicker skin because you're constantly being critiqued. It didn't matter if you were 10. I remember being told I needed to take acting lessons or that, you know, this or that, but I never, yeah, I never thought I would start a business. And so um, it's funny looking back now at like some of those, you know, entrepreneurial experiences, um, Maybe it's not so surprising that I did end up starting a business, but at the time, you know, at first I thought I would be in musical theater. And then in high school, uh, I became very committed to working in the government and, and so thought I would continue that path forever and ever. Amen. Um, which obviously I haven't. <laughs> wow. So what was it in high school that led you to want to work for the government? I went to a high school that was outside of New York and 9-11 happened when I was in high school. And um, it had like a really big impact on me. It just really shifted the way I thought I wanted to learn. I wanted to know more. I wanted to help. I mean, there's just so much that came to me and I wanted to study international relations with a focus on, on national security. And so I ended up going to Georgetown to do that. Okay. Wow. That's so interesting how at such a young age, you were moved in such a way that, I mean, because most high school students, right, they, they, they don't really know where they want to go. They're so young, but an event like that was such an impact. So you go to Georgetown and then, you know, what's brilliant about Georgetown is being in DC, you have access to all of these internships. And so I started interning, you know, my freshman year at a think tank. And then my sophomore year, I moved to working at an agency called Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is an international development agency. And then my junior year, I started working at the State Department in counterterrorism. And that was, you know, the dream job, the dream sort of position and was working as an intern and constantly telling my mentors slash bosses that I wanted to be hired. I wanted to be hired. I wanted to work there. And I think to make me go away, they actually hired me as an employee my senior year. So I ended up working uh, my senior year, like as a, you know, as a full-time employee while also finishing schooling, which was relatively easy to do at Georgetown because they have so many seminar classes that are, you know, once a week at night because of adjunct professors. And so I was able to make that work. Wow. So how long were you there? That's amazing. And what kind of work were you doing? So I was in counterterrorism. This was a time where, you know, we as a country, for better or for worse, were very active in Iraq and Afghanistan. And my specialty was actually helping women fight terrorism. And so I developed the first women in counterterrorism strategy. I was developing programming that was focused on 
helping women both in the security sector. So meaning women who are in the police or they were in, you know, the equivalent of like the FBI to be more supported and effective in their jobs, as well as programs that were focused on helping women in civil society speak out against terrorism, recognize signs of radicalization, just a, a variety of things, and continued that work until I left the department at some point in, in 2012. Wow. So you were there a long time. Yeah. And you yeah. wrote a book about your time in that space. That's what led to the next thing. Yes, definitely. I mean, so my, uh, my time at state was, you know, again, focusing on women that were in these very challenging environments. One of the biggest takeaways I had, not, you know, the sole takeaway, but one of the most powerful takeaways was that oftentimes from my perception, so many of the government interventions around overlooked communities um, focus on not necessarily job creation and job sustainment. They tend to be more sort of service provision, which is so critical in emergency situations. But we as a government in the U.S. are particularly skilled at moving beyond that sort of emergency assistance into actually ongoing vocational training, and then potentially job creation where people can actually have the dignity of work. And so because I had seen so many communities that just felt sort of powerless, I really began to think about job creation and job sustainment, knowing that, you know, that would allow for access to resources because they could actually earn a living and then determine their own destiny and didn't know a ton uh, about developing world economies. And so while I was at state, I actually did an MBA at Columbia and commuted up to New York, you know, which was hugely helpful experience and in, in having, you know, some space to think about developing world economies. Um, but that's first when I learned about the retail manufacturing industry, where I, you know, came to find out that it was one of the largest economies in the developing world. And it was a economy that was dominated uh, by women in the workforce. So that was the beginning of the seeds of to the market. Isn't that so wonderful that all of these life experiences come together and that's the genesis, right? So you have this passion for helping women and passion for helping the world. And you start learning about that in business school and it all comes together. So then you write the book by the change you want to see, which is an amazing book. I've read it. Thank you very much for writing it. Oh, thanks, Mace. And Tell us where that has taken you and where you are today, because the work that you're doing, I think is so powerful, but it's really hard to explain for someone who, you know, their head isn't in this space of how do we help women in these micro economies all around the world? So I would love for you to share with our audience, you know, where did you go from there? I just fast forwarding, I left state. I had graduated from Columbia because I was doing those in conjunction. I actually went to work for Mrs. Cindy McCain um, at the McCain Institute for International Leadership, where I was running their human trafficking and labor exploitation programming. I developed a, a more informed process around the extent to which there was labor exploitation in the supply chain in retail. And it was after my time at the McCain Institute that I started to the market. And um, to the market uh, is a business that is focused on really helping brands, retailers, corporations, consumers harness their purchasing power for good um, is that sort of macro mission. Um, but what we actually do in practice is 
we help make it as easy as possible for generally very large companies to source and manufacture from ethical and sustainable suppliers who are providing dignified work in the retail industry. And so along that journey of, you know, deciding I wanted to start to the market, I, as you shared, been, had been working on this book by the change you want to see with the hope of explaining to the best of my ability, certainly not brilliantly, but, but hopefully, you know, as plainly as I could, the opportunity I saw for every, um, every consumer and every business, which was that, you know, we have these values um, that we believe in. And oftentimes our values are very different and there's nothing wrong with that. Meaning I could have a value that I really care about American-made product because I care about American-made jobs. Another value could be I'm deeply committed to the environment. I, you know, things that I buy, I want them to be, you know, as environmentally friendly as possible. But nonetheless, we have these values and then we have this purchasing power. And oftentimes, Americans in particular, given that we spend so much money, we tend to be pretty disconnected to the extent to which our purchasing power can advance our values. And so I really wanted to write a book that was speaking about this idea of conscious consumerism from my perspective, which was that it didn't have to be political. This isn't a political idea. It didn't have to be elitist. This isn't an elitist idea. Um, This could be something that everybody can engage in to the extent that they can and wanted to provide really practical ways that people could in fact engage in conscious consumerism. So that's how By the Change You Want to See came to be. Oh my gosh. Well, and that brings up so many questions, especially for me, I'm looking to build a house or remodel a property. And there are amazing sources through Alibaba that you can find flooring. And I mean, you can find anything you want, but the question I keep having is, is this ethically sourced? Who are the people working on this product? Why is it so inexpensive? Does it make sense? And, and I can't, I can't vet that through Alibaba, right? I can't really ask those types of questions and be sure that I'm getting the answer that is true. But your company to the market actually does that vetting and ensures that these women who are working in these various small communities are in fact being treated well. They're they're actually, most of them are running their own little micro businesses. Is that correct? So we have developed a proprietary vetting system that allows us to look at all different types of supplier footprints. So meaning it could be, you know, a small female cooperative that, you know, is comprised of people who are doing work at home um, and coming together and, and sort of amassing their production all the way to fair trade certified factories. Um, so very different footprints, but we have developed this proprietary vetting system that allows us to essentially derive a scorecard as to how sustainable the facility is or the cooperative is, how ethical it is, and um, how it performs from a business standpoint. And what this does is in combining these three inputs, it's really helping us to de-risk corporations, retailers, brands who have a desire to be sourcing and manufacturing from more ethical, more sustainable suppliers, but really struggle to figure out how 
or to operationalize that intent. And so the work that we're doing, as I think about the impact on women is if to the market is able to fundamentally shift the volume of work away from factories that have poor environmental and social footprints that you know, may suffer from difficult environments and, and exploitative environments towards ones that are, are providing empowering and dignified work, you know, that we're doing something really significant because the scale of um, retail manufacturing is so significant that you really can, this is really an industry where you can make a big difference if you can shift the volume away from these exploitative factories. I love this so much. The work you're doing is so important and so impactful. Can you give us an example of one of your clients and like all the way through to the supply chain? What does that look like? Sure. So uh, Nordstrom Rock is a great client of ours. Um, so one of the fundamental things that we've tried to do it to the market is make sure that ethical and sustainable can be accessible to people at multiple price points. So we have a number of off-price accounts that we work with. We work with TJ Maxx, we work with Burlington, we work with Nordstrom Rack. So if we take Nordstrom Rack, they've been quite focused on, on integrating more sustainable product into the floor on, you know, as well as online. And we looked at a number of categories. Uh, we looked at baseball hats, we looked at bucket hats, we looked at duffel bags, we looked at uh, when masks you know, were coming out, we did masks. And we were able to shift um, a lot of product for them out of conventional cotton into organic cotton. So we were able to work with one of our partners who is what's called a GOTS certified organic cotton factory. GOTS is the global organic textile standard. It's the highest organic cotton standard. Um, it's a factory certification as well as a product certification. It has ethical and sustainable elements of that, of that footprint. And we were able to do a lot of production for them in this type of facility of this type of material, therefore having an impact around number of hours of work created, um, number of carbon emissions avoided because of our process versus a conventional process, liters of water saved, um, kilowatts of energy saved, just a, a variety of, of impact metrics that we were able to generate because of you know, a relatively simple shift of sourcing more product from ethical and sustainable suppliers versus conventional ones. And so you are how many years into to the market and where do you guys currently stand? So we incorporated at the end of 2016. Um, I bootstrapped for 2017 and then we raised our first round of capital in 2018. Um, and you're a B, so, B Corp. We are a certified B Corp and we just in December were certified as a women-owned business. That's amazing. Um, which is exciting. Gosh, I guess over the history of the, the, you know, since our first fundraise in 2018, we've done three subsequent rounds from there, two debt, one equity, and we continue to scale the business with the vision of, of really creating the new standard for how brands, retailers, and corporations are sourcing and manufacturing product in the retail space. And how many clients do you have on the roster? How big's your team? What, is, what does the company look like? Yeah, um, we're about 20 people. So we're still lean and mean. You know, we've now serviced hundreds of clients. Oftentimes our clients are enterprise size clients. That tends to be the primary focus of the business is, is sort of uh, Fortune 500 um, size businesses. 
We also do digitally native brands and, and sort of smaller corporate accounts, but typically we spend most of our time on um, larger enterprise clients, enterprise size clients, um, knowing that they have such significant purchasing power that it's such a big opportunity for us in engaging them. And you've done this all before you've even turned 40. You're amazing and an inspiration. I'm just so thrilled that we had a chance to meet at uh, Alt Summit. We determined that was three years ago. And just to be able to keep you, you know, on see your updates on LinkedIn and make introductions where, where appropriate. And I'm just thrilled to see the progress you've made. I remember one of the very first decks that you sent over to me and reviewing those with you. I mean, it's been, it's been a great journey for you. All right. So let's jump into the the key of uh, some of these other questions. What's the one thing you have to do every single day to get your day started? I would say that I really struggle without coffee. Even if I have like almost nothing to do, it's really hard for me, you know, because I'm so committed to coffee. Uh, it's hard for me to to really get going um, without it. And so I have to say, uh, just a huge coffee drinker and have it with me throughout the day. I try to stop around five, um, but I, I'm definitely sort of like a, a robot that doesn't power on without that initial, you know, I love cup it. of coffee. What would you say has been a distinctive inflection point in your career? Well, I know it's, it's probably quite trite, but certainly when COVID started and so many things shifted in the market and we, our core revenue in 2020 actually grew 400%. It was, you know, a real inflection point because there was a lot of movement out of, out of China from a manufacturing standpoint. And we as a business aren't in China. So we ended up picking up a lot of business. Um, so that our team really began to rapidly expand in 2020 and continue to expand in 2021. Um, so that would be, I think, a, a really serious inflection point when I think about the journey of the business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember for our school, I was serving on the school board. And at that time, we were in the midst of our big capital campaign construction project. And the construction committee was so astute and aware that immediately when COVID hit, they said, we're shifting all production. We're shifting all supplies to these other countries. And I thought, man, that's a little early to pull the trigger on that, but they just knew and they were right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as a result, our project was only three weeks delayed. And mainly that was because of the county's inspectors got sick with COVID. (laughs) And so they, Mm. they actually couldn't come, but we had some product held up in Mexico, but it was only for like a week or so, but Mm -hmm. I was just envisioning, man, if we had everything that was still stuck coming out of China, we would have been months delayed, maybe years Mm -hmm. delayed. It would have been a total disaster. So Mm -hmm. you were really well positioned and I'm glad that companies were able to find you to be able to shift their production, which is fantastic. What drives you? I would say the opportunity to serve drives me. So feeling like I have every resource at my fingertips to enable and allow me to serve and feel like my meaning of life is like to make other people's lives easier, better, improved. And so, yeah, feeling like I am aligned with my skill sets, the gifts I've been given with maximizing impact and output. You know, when I feel like that alignment is, is there, that's when I'm, you know, hyper, hyper driven. 
So a servant's heart, a true servant's heart. What's the craziest thing you've experienced in a boardroom or in a meeting? And what did you learn from it? Well, you know, luckily I haven't had, you know, anything, you know, too scary take place like in a boardroom or a meeting, meaning like I don't have any memories of like being screamed at or, you know, something being said that I felt like was just like deeply inappropriate or, I mean, certainly, you know, difficult personalities abound. Um, And so I don't know if there's like a unique story that I could point to. You know, too many. Yeah. I mean, it's just is what it is. I mean, I would say that less so, you know, scary or bad and more like funny. One was uh, I was doing an interview with an investor. Well, there's so many, but this is one of many. I was doing an interview with an investor and I had, I was going, this was also when my, um, I was doing, you know, this is pre-COVID. I was doing sort of live speaking book events and I had put on blush and one of the hairs from the blush brush had come off onto my face and had only attached on one side. And so it looked like I had this extremely long black hair extending from my cheek. And I didn't look at it until after the interview. And I was like, oh my God, I hope that like somehow by the power of God, it like was blended or like they couldn't see with the focus on zoom because if they did then you know it's sort of like borderline terrifying so so many things like that though have happened to me that like I can't even you know it's it's hard to keep up with like the mishaps that I've had on zoom so oh my gosh that is so funny I'll probably cut this out, but I'll share this really funny story. So this past Sunday, my husband and I are at church and we went to the early service because the kids had sports or something. Yeah. And so typically this room probably fits 3000 people. I mean, it's a huge room mm-hmm. and I would say it was half full. So call it 1500 people and the pastor's up there and he's like, you know, given his great sermon. And he says, you know, if you believe stand up and say, I believe. And so mm-hmm. we stand up and we're like, I believe. And it turns out it was an altar call. Like he was calling for people who were just accepting Jesus <sighs> as their savior oh, I love that. to stand so up and we, for you to like go yeah. up and get baptized. Oh yeah. Jesus. And we were the only, and meanwhile, we've been believers our whole lives. Like we were the yeah. only people to stand up for two minutes. It was so awkward and so horrible and terrifying. Like, just to be clear, I've, I've accepted for a long time. I'm just saying hi. I love and then, like, understanding the so. elder. There's an elder. He comes up, he prays with us. They hand us like this like, Bible. And, oh my gosh. We were, I was, that is hilarious. It was one of the funniest things. And I was like, Oh, I'm sure there were so many people in that room who were like, Oh, look, Graham and Mish decided to pledge their lives to Christ. I mean, it was so that funny. Is so I love those misunderstandings <laughs> similar, not nearly as embarrassing, but similar. I had a misunderstanding yesterday where someone was introducing us and I asked him, we just, as the call was starting, I said, Peter, do you want to kick us off? And he was like, okay, bye. And got off immediately. And (laughs) and he thought I had said, I'm kicking you off. (laughs) I just love the misunderstandings that can happen. So I called him after the meeting, but it was funny. Oh my gosh. That is hilarious. Is there a flop or failure that you would love to share that really taught you an important life lesson? Oh man, I've had so many failures. I mean, I feel like I have daily failures. 
I mean, I think across like the, the breadth of the failures, the lesson is resiliency. I think, you know, one of the things I've done at different times in my fundraising journey is not casting a wide enough net. I think I've done that twice now. It's that my pre-seed, and I think I actually did that in my series A at the beginning. And so, you know, the reminder was that I can have no expectations around, you know, in, in the case of, of, you know, raising money, I, I should have no expectations around my perception of if people are a good fit, you know, my perception of um, whether we're uh, aligned from a thesis, I, I shouldn't take anything for granted and that I need to cast a really, really wide net. You know, my husband always told me before I had raised my, my first round of capital and he had raised, you know, several um, by that point that he feels like he has to talk to a hundred people to get 10 people interested. And, and out of those 10, he maybe would get two checks. And I always thought that that was just this like hyperbolic, you know, statement that, cause my husband could be sort of, he, he sometimes makes these sort of like vision, like, you know, statements. And, you know, I, I tend to be very exacting and I was like, I, I just, you know, that feels like just, just a big exaggeration, but like many things, he, he's right. I mean, I, I really think he's right. You have to cast such a wide net to, to get um, the outcome that you need in fundraising. Typically, there are always exceptions. And those are the ones that typically are, you know, written about online. So then founders get super confused when, you know, after five conversations, they haven't gotten five term sheets. But, um, you know, that comes to mind as um, just persistence and resiliency. And then the lesson being that I need to cast a wider net. And as you grow in your career, you start to know more and more people who know more and more people and those people know you. So of course they want to make those introductions. And so it's easier to cast a wider net as your network continues to grow. I think a lot of people forget how important the networking piece is. And I think networking has a, a negative connotation, but it, it really shouldn't. And in this context, it's who do you know? How can you help people? Mm-hmm. You know, who do I know from Columbia or from Georgetown mm-hmm. or from, you know, you have to just think about all these people. And I think it's really important. One of the things I always tell my mentees is it's really important to always keep people updated and give them a mm-hmm. quick email or even a quick text. Hey, how's it going? This is what's happening on my end. Um, and just, touch base with people because Mm -hmm. when suddenly you're coming from out of the blue and you haven't spoken to someone in 20 years, that's when it gets a little more awkward or uncomfortable, unless you had a really, really deep connection with that person from a long time ago. But, you know, now I find I, I help a lot of people who, and it's not just business. It's like, oh my gosh, do you know a doctor? Uh, Do you know a contractor? Mm -hmm. Do you know, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's just good to maintain those relationships. I think it's so important. Totally. What is the boldest thing you've ever said to a colleague and or a boss besides you need to hire me a hundred (laughs) times? I don't know. I think I was like, looking back, I'm sure I like was, was really, 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 really assertive for my age and salary negotiations. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, I ended up getting hired my senior year as as I shared at the state department, because unfortunately somebody like had been let go. And so I was filling his space and I had known what he had been paid. And so when I was negotiating my salary, I had no business. I'm sure I was hilarious slash really annoying to deal with. But I remember 
I think in my head, I said something like, well, so-and-so was paid this. And I think he looked at pictures of trucks all day. <gasps> that was my, I think that was like one of the reasons why he had, I mean, it wasn't wrong. I mean, he, meaning like he had looked at trucks all day. I think that was, <laughs> he, he wasn't particularly creative, but um, you know, I had no business saying that, but I did end up with like, you know, a, a, a decent starting salary for a college kid. So I credit myself for that, but I, I think, um, probably wouldn't repeat that tactic necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But that's a good lesson. That's an important lesson. Always try to negotiate for the highest, especially, especially first job out because your first job leads to the next, the next, the next. Totally. I mean, you, the, the more respectfully assertive you can be in that initial peg, right. Where you're pegging your salary, you're, you're generally, you know, going up from there. Whereas, you know, if you start at, you know, X divided by two versus X, you're constantly sort of working from that deficit to even get to, yeah, you know, X. And so um, I, you know, again, I think women in particular, I say tend not to do this and tend to take the like approach of like, well, I'm lucky to even get an offer, um, which you are lucky to get an offer. We're always lucky to get an offer and you still have, have an opportunity to, negotiate and see how you can maximize the outcome for you and for your employer. Yeah. Yes. One of my other women guests, Whitney Gomez, she was at a big bank and she said when it came time for bonuses, those discussions, mm. none of the women on her team ever approached her and asked for anything. And the men would start jockeying a couple months prior to make sure mm. she was aware of what it is that they were doing how well they were mm -hmm. doing it, et cetera, regardless of if they were doing a great job or not, they still were making FaceTime mm -hmm. with her to make sure that she knew that they wanted the bigger bonus. And it was an interesting mm -hmm. observation on her end. And I think it's an important mm -hmm. lesson for, for women, especially younger women to know, like you need to, you need to advocate for yourself. You're worth it. You're getting 100%. the offer. They like you. Yeah. There's always, there, there always is wiggle room, right? In anything. And I take that lesson from my mom. She'll go into Macy's and she's trying to negotiate. I'm like, mom, it's Macy's. Oh, I and love most it. of the, most That's of the time amazing. they give her a discount. I'm like, oh my gosh, it worked. <laughs> I love that. Good it's, for her. That's yeah, awesome. It's sometimes a little annoying, but usually effective. So I appreciate that. <laughs> what advice would you have for your 25 year old self? You know, be open to where you're called. I think, you know, at that age, I felt really convicted that I would stay in national security. And I think at that point in time, it was really hard for me to envision a, a world in which I wouldn't be living in DC and I wouldn't be, you know, working in the government and, you know, I'm not doing either of those things now. <laughs> so uh, maybe just reminding myself that there are many, many paths to a fulfilling and impactful life. And oftentimes it doesn't look exactly the way perhaps we originally envisioned. Really good lesson. Really, really good one. Yeah. I like that advice. All right. So you have about 20 people on your team. You've probably managed a lot of other people in the past. What is the one thing you look for in a job candidate? I think work ethic is the biggest thing for me. I am, you know, for better or worse, like definitely on the workaholic scale and really, really driven and passionate about what I do and want to hire people who have deep passion, drive, 
an energy around what they do that then allows them to really feel compelled to constantly sort of put in sort of extra effort to be as, uh, again, as creative as possible. I think I struggle with people who, you know, there's this sort of like old adage of like, do you live to work? Do you work to live? I think when people work for me, I have friends, you know, from all walks of life who, you know, and everyone is absolutely empowered to choose, you know, whatever their, their sort of orientation. I tend to work best with people who live to work and who love their work and um, who are all in on their work. And so that I, I search for people like that. And how do you vet? What are the types of questions you ask? Or can you tell by the stories they share? Uh, I think it's storytelling. So asking questions where they're sort of illuminating things that they've done in the past, like tell me about, you know, your, your previous jobs. What are the things you liked? What are the things you didn't like? You know, you very quickly can get information that way around like, I didn't like that I had to work past five. Or, you know, I didn't love that, you know, I was asked to do X, which fell, fell outside of my portfolio. That's where you begin to like flesh out my red flags, um, which are things like, you know, I didn't like that they were asking me to do this and it's not my job description. And not to say that people aren't empowered to do that, but at a startup that doesn't work, right? Like everybody does everything. So that's sort of the kiss of death. I think what's also been super helpful for me is being as descriptive as possible about what the reality of working in a startup is like, and not only a startup, but a venture-backed startup where you have unique pressures that present themselves around growth. And so trying to be, you know, exceedingly clear about what it's like to help. And, And what I often say to folks at the end is, you know, it's important for me and for you to be intellectually honest about whether this is interesting to you. And why I say that is that I think all of us have a tendency to imagine that we would do, you know, that we could survive, do well, whatever in a situation just to get the job, like in the chase of getting a job instead of like actually asking ourselves, is this a situation I'm actually going to enjoy, thrive in, feel comfortable in? And I always push people, you know, to say like, please really think and be intellectually honest with yourself on whether this is an environment that you would feel comfortable in day in and day out. Very interesting. You've thought through this a bit. Uh, Only by not doing, you know, the right thing and setting expectations previously that, that so much of this has been learned. Yeah. Startup is very different than big corporate, very, very, or government. I mean, the fact that you were able to make that transition is, is remarkable, but interestingly, you said in the beginning, I'm not surprised that this is where I've ended up starting my own business because right. Looking back on your entrepreneurial ventures and being a musical theater star, (laughs) what is something that you've learned from a mentor that has really stuck with you? I think uh, one of my mentors, this woman named Ambassador Milan Verveer, she uh, was the first ambassador at large for global women's issues. And I was seconded to her office um, to work on women, peace, and security while at the State Department. And what Ambassador Verveer did exceedingly well was managed people sort of as deliberately as she managed her portfolio. And so what I mean by that is that she really fundamentally understood to maximize the output of her office 
she needed to put equal energy into managing people as she did into managing the subject matter sort of that fell within her area of of, uh, responsibility. And so that has always stuck with me. And I've tried to replicate that in, in being sort of hyper, hyper focused on people and people first so that the leaders that I've hired are in an empowered position to go out and lead others so that we're getting the most out of the team. Stuff. What advice would you have for someone looking to start their own business? I would say thinking about um, what unique value add you can bring. And I think it's super, super critical to ask yourself and getting back to intellectual honesty to ask yourself, what specifically do I have and that I can contribute? And this doesn't have to be like passion-based. This can be a very pragmatic question around like, are there any nail salons in this area? And then the question becomes, if the answer is no, what do you as an individual have from a unique skill set that makes you uniquely qualified to open one that will succeed? So asking yourself, like, what problem am I trying to solve? And what skill or skills do I have that makes me uniquely qualified to try to solve it? And I say that because oftentimes we're not looking at one or the other, meaning we're, we're looking at a, a problem set that we identify, which is important, but then we're not looking at whether we are in fact best suited to address it. And when I say best suited, it doesn't mean like, well, I spent 30 years in nail school and my mom, you know, had like a, a you know, nail salon and therefore like I am best suited, but it could be that, you know, that you are highly organized and have an incredible sense of, you know, style and color and that you feel confident that, that you're able to manage a nail salon in an area that, you know, has poorly rated reviews salons in the broader area because they're poorly managed. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, that you have a PhD in, you know, nails. It's more of a function of saying like to yourself, okay, if I identify a problem that is worthy of solving. And I'm going to go through all of the subterfuge, all of the heartache, the physical stress, the emotional stress of starting and running a business. Am I uniquely qualified to go out and do that? And I think the most successful entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs that I've seen, whether they're in the not-for-profit space or the for-profit space are those that have best aligned identifying a problem. And the problem again can be, you know, lack of clean water, or it could be, you know, that nail polish chips too quickly or something. Like it doesn't have to be like a profound humanitarian issue, but nonetheless, you know, that you have identified a problem and that you are uniquely qualified to help address it. Right. All right. We're going to head into the virtual insanity rapid fire favorite leadership and or business book. There's so many books, Think and Grow Rich, that I think are really, you know, interesting, Think and Grow Rich being one of them. So I guess that would be the one that I, that I point to. I, you know, of course, um, am super proud of By the Change. So I'll have to reference that as well. Absolutely. What's your favorite pastime? I love to read about travel. Um, I love to travel. I find it to be total escapism to 
you know, look at, read about new hotel openings or, you know, I just, even last night I was laying in bed, couldn't sleep. And so I was looking at like, you know, what's it like to travel in a small cabin on a cruise ship? I mean, I just find the <laughs> travel industry so interesting. Uh, and it, to me, it's just total escapism. And so what, like what magazines or books do you have that, that are sort of like guilty pleasures? Yeah. I mean, I would say like things that I, I don't really read magazines anymore, which is sort of a bummer. Um, I just do almost everything digitally now. Uh, I would say that the points guy, that's a, a great travel website, um, travel and leisure. I mean, um, I'm as you know, we'll get to a total Disney lover. And so all ears is like a, a blog <laughs> on Dis about Disney and all the happenings. So I'll have to check in on all ears. And I check you know, I have several Instagram uh, handles I follow that are like sort of inside Disney news um, that I, I love to just see what's going on. I have a future guest that's going to be on the podcast who worked for Disney for a long time. He was on the, I guess, on the theme park side, on the real estate side and sort of the parks development. And, you know, we, we would have lunch every once in a while, but the first time he invited me for lunch, I pulled into the building and it said Imagineering and I just about died. I was like, mm -hmm. I can't believe that you work in this uh -huh. building and you haven't told me like to him, it was not even a big deal. I was like, do you know, it's my life dream to be a Disney Imagineer. And if I had to redo my life, I would go back and be an engineer undergrad because totally. that's how I know I could get this job. But yes, um, yeah, I am also a Disney file and that is hilarious. <laughs> it's all ears. I Yes. Oh, it's so good. Totally yeah. recommend. Newsletter well, I have, great. I have another friend who started a really cool Instagram that's called park side adventures where he mm -hmm. has these little star Wars action figures and they go all through the parks and oh, the captions are really <laughs> clever because it's usually something that Walt Disney said or did and something from the star Wars movie and something with whatever character. So you're seeing the oh, I love that. That, yeah, the POV is from the action figure of them seeing the park. So you may want to follow that. that. Yeah, it's a really cool, it's a really cool That's site brilliant. or really cool page. Well, this is impossible, but if you had an entire day with no meetings, what would you do? Oh gosh. I mean, it just totally depends on where I am and like how rested I am. Um, I know that like by the time it gets to the weekend, I'm so exhausted that like a dream weekend day would be, you know, essentially laying in bed and, and like binging on some show that I'm watching, you know, right now I'm like totally obsessed with British shows. So I've been watching, like, I've just been cycling through different <laughs> murder mysteries, British murder mysteries, which were, you know, are always so much lighter and funnier than like the American ones. So if I, if I'm tired, it would be some sort of version of that where I'm, you know, only getting up to, to, to feed myself. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I'm well rested, I would say, you know, I love to, to, uh, if I'm in a place where it's safe to do so, I love to hop on like a little bike and, you know, bicycle and putz around and pop into stores and just sort of be outside. So that's always really fun for me to just sort of be out out in the world browsing with no agenda. Yeah, that would be, sounds dreamy. And mm -hmm. so since you love to travel, what is your favorite vacation spot? Walt Disney World is my favorite vacation spot. I mean, uh, yeah, there's no, no place I love more. 
um, if I was forced to exclude Disney, I would have <laughs> to say um, the Bahamas, um, just because, of, you know, they're just, I find them to be so um, beautiful. And uh, I love how close it is. It's just, mm. you know, so accessible. And I have lots of really wonderful memories um, from spending time there. And does your husband also have a love of Disney that you do? Or is this something you have to do with different Disney friends? So I would say that, you know, Nate has, uh, you know, tolerance for Disney <laughs> and he loves that I love Disney, you know, but I don't think he necessarily shares the depth of devotion. And so I typically do Disney with my mom and my siblings because uh, she is a Disney Vacation Club member. Oh, and so, yeah, so we'll go do, you know, an annual sort of Disney trip with her points. Okay. Yeah. So I ask because my husband, you know, I would agree, tolerates my <laughs> obsession. And, um, I found myself actually with a friend, my, I would, I would consider them my Disney BFFs. I was with my two Disney BFFs. We were at Disneyland and it sort of occurred to me that it was my wedding anniversary. <laughs> and, we, and we were laughing because my husband was golfing and I was at Disney. So it actually was a perfect anniversary celebration, but yeah, he, yes, tol he tolerates things you love. I love it. <laughs> it was an off year. Didn't, you know, it's like, who cares? You're, yeah, you're 12. Yeah. Who cares? Finally, what's your favorite quote? I think, you know, the thing that, that again is so commonly said, but was so drilled into me growing up is just treat others as you'd like to be treated. So that is such a central part to how my parents oriented themselves and how they tried to orient us. And it's to me the most important tenet because I like to be treated really well. <laughs> so I did, you know, try to do my best to, to extend that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jane. It's been such a treat to catch up with you and talk to you. It's so good I, to see you. I remember seeing you at the Alt Summit in 2019 and thinking, I need to meet this gal. She's amazing. Oh, and I was just you. glad that Barbara Jones introduced us. And uh, I was Barbara. there with Courtney Reed. We were having a little girls hang. It was so much fun just getting to spend time with you and hear your story and the reasoning behind writing your book and then seeing you transition into building this incredible business that is so important for brands and for for people who have you know a heart for for doing the right thing so thank you for your time and thank i hope that me. yeah i hope that all goes well with your your latest adventures and with all the animals that hopefully you'll bring on to the property. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks, Mish. This is Mish Pierce with Mentor DNA, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit mentordna.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. 
The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amour Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep-sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmorBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent you.